We come this morning to look at verses 25 and 26. Specifically, I kind of hoped to do more than that, but it didn't pan out that way. Verses 25 and 6. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. That's our text. Now, some translations, if you maybe have the New King James or something in front of you, it says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers. I do not want you to be ignorant. What is ignorance? Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, about this mystery. What, what is ignorance? What does that word mean? How does ignorance relate to stupidity or being slow of mind? How does ignorance relate to intelligence and knowledge? The word ignorance literally means the same thing as the word agnostic, which means without knowledge. Without knowledge. So being ignorant of something means that you're unaware of it. You don't know it. It doesn't mean you're stupid. It doesn't mean you're slow of mind or anything else in particular. You can be the brightest, sharpest, you know, high-octane burning mind there is and still be ignorant of plenty. Still not know things that you simply don't know. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. Can Christians be ignorant? Can you be ignorant? Maybe the better question is, are you aware of ways in which you are ignorant? That's a good start right there, to be aware there are things out there you just don't know much about or much of anything. But this isn't just that. right? The, 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 you know, we talk about ignorance on all sorts of levels. In fact, we talked about knowledge this morning in Education Hour, and we recognize we're ignorant, we're unaware of all sorts of things that we're unaware of, that we simply don't know. But Paul doesn't want us to be unaware and just as a kind of running start into this, the Scripture is given for our instruction. But God's given us the Scripture, this relatively little book, although in certain ways it's very big, uh, but mostly it's not. It's not that big of a book compared to other big books. He's given us the book of books, the writing of writings, for our instruction. That we should not be ignorant, but that we should grow in knowledge. That we should grow in understanding of God and of His world. Ignorance leads to bad thinking, and bad thinking leads to bad Christian practice. Okay? Ignorance leads to bad thinking. We're not processing and thinking correctly because we're, we're unaware of certain things, or, or you know, just unaware it's out there, or we don't, don't even know it. And that leads eventually to bad living. Now, Paul has that in mind here. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. I don't want you to be ignorant of what's going on with Israel and be conceited in your own mind that you understand something that you don't. In other words, Paul's concern here is for his readers in Rome, the Gentile readers, not to get haughty, not to get prideful in themselves, but to be humbled in themselves, understanding what God is doing with the Gentiles, with Israel, and so on. But there's a tendency for us in our ignorance to get full of ourselves, of our own conceits. And maybe you know something about that. Your pastor certainly does. Wisdom in our own conceits is an easy thing to fall into. Because right? I have a way, I track things, I've got a rationale, I can understand what's going on, and we kind of put a lot of stock in our own wisdom. As opposed to maybe emptying ourselves and saying, well, I'm not so wise, but the Word of God is wisdom for us, and Jesus Christ is wisdom for me, and understanding, appealing to the Scripture, looking to the Word of God. I had made an appeal this morning to read broadly, to, to be educated broadly, all that for sure, but only under the Word of God. 
It's, 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 it's the scripture, it's the writing that God has given us through the apostles, through the prophets, that has to guide us in our understanding of who we are, of what we're doing, of who Christ is, of who God is, and therefore of the world and everything in it. And from there we can build, but we must have the scriptures in hand. Because bad ignorance leads to bad thinking, leads to bad living. And that's a pastoral concern for Paul. Wisdom and instruction come to us by the Holy Spirit through the scripture. So Christians, keep after it. Keep the word of God open in front of you. Keep reading it. Keep reading it. Keep studying it. Keep praying through it. It is for our instruction. Here specifically, though, the instruction given is that we wouldn't be, or that the Roman Christians wouldn't be ignorant. Ignorant of what? Ignorant of this mystery, he says. Well, what is the content of this mystery? What does it have to do with this mystery that he's talking about? It has to do with God's large-scale plans for both Israel and the Gentiles. Right? It's, 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 it's something that's been, I'll discuss in a second, revealed now about what God's doing among the nations, what he's doing with Israel and all the Gentile nations. And so that is a basic division, by the way, in the Bible, is Israel and everyone else. That's kind of a basic division. There's Israel and the nations. And the nations are the Gentiles, that's another word for nations, or goyim. Uh, sometimes if you want to throw a little Hebrew in there, it's, it's fun that I call it goyim. Um, it, there's, there's some jokes there. But anyway, that's, that's a basic division, Israel and everyone else. Okay, we see there are at least three basic, very basic uh, divisions among people that are addressed in baptism, in Christian baptism. There is neither what? Jew nor Greek. There's that first one. There's neither slave nor free. And there's neither male nor female. These would be the major divisions, especially from a Jewish standpoint, in the ancient world. There's Jews and everybody else. There's slaves and free. And that's just two classes that are entirely different. And, of course, there's males and females that are vastly different. Uh, so these things, and of course the gospel brings us all together in that. It says we have one Lord, one faith, and one hope in all of that. Paul doesn't want his readers, the Gentile Christians in Rome, and by extension you here now, Paul doesn't want his readers to be ignorant of God's large-scale plans for Israel and the Gentiles. That's what he's talking about. That's what, he's, that's what he's elaborating here. He's saying, I don't want you, I, I don't want you to get haughty, I don't want you to get prideful, by misunderstanding this thing, like somehow you're better, like somehow because the Gentiles are coming into the church in droves, and the sons of Israel, the Israelites, are by and large not, right? That they're not coming, that somehow the Gentiles are better than the Jews. They've, they've figured it out where the Jews didn't, or something like that, right? Paul says, that's not it. That's an ignorant way of understanding. You don't get what's going on here if you're thinking that way, and it's going to land you in this haughty sinfulness of pride because of your ignorance. So ignorance leads to that, and we need to be careful of that. Paul wants his readers or his listeners to know, to understand God's large-scale plans, which means eschatology. That's that's maybe a word for this, general eschatology. What's God doing, and how does it kind of come to an end? How does history come to an end? What, What is God doing? We might call it general eschatology. My call personal eschatology, well, what is it for a believer to die in Christ or the experience of a, an unbeliever to die outside of Christ and what goes on there and, and with the soul and heaven and hell and things like this? We call that personal eschatology. They're, of course, they're linked uh, because we're all linked into this work God's doing, this history that he's, the story that he's telling that we're a part of uh, and telling ourselves. But God, God wants us. Paul expressly says he doesn't want us ignorant as to eschatology, as to the large-scale work of what God's doing among the Jews and among the Gentiles. 
especially the plans as they relate to Israel. That's kind of the focus here in this section. I mentioned that before. The gospel, the Messiah has come to the people of God, Israel, and what did they do? In hard-heartedness, they rejected him and put him to death. Okay, well, there's a problem already. Okay, we have, we have the people of God rejecting Messiah and murdering him. That's not like what they should do. But according to the eternal purpose of God and plan, it's precisely what came to pass. And it didn't stop there. It wasn't like the people of God, Israel, because, again, the, the nations didn't know God. God hadn't revealed himself to the Amalekites. He hadn't revealed himself to the Phoenicians and so on. He had revealed himself to Israel. And so he sends his son to Israel. They put him to death. And then some of them repent and believe, like Paul's one of them. He mentioned he's part of this remnant. But by and large, they didn't. By and large, the Jews kept their Judaism and rejected Messiah and the Christianity that came out of of the worship of Messiah. And, of course, they lost their Judaism that generation, just like Jesus said they would. When their temple came tumbling down and their city was, as we'll see in a second, uh, overrun by Gentiles and will continue to be overrun by Gentiles until their time is fulfilled. More on that later. So Paul starts out, chapter 9, weeping over Israel. Weeping over his brethren according to the flesh who have rejected Christ, who are hard-hearted, even though they've been given all those covenantal blessings through the years that they enjoy. And he weeps for them, and he wants to trade his own salvation for theirs, if it would be so. Okay, so we know we're talking about Israel after the flesh, because Paul's talking about that way from the beginning of chapter, chapter 9. But he also mentioned there in verse 14, I'll read that in our chapter, so he's magnifying his ministry in order somehow to make his fellow Jews jealous, and thus to save some of them. Right, so he knows that as the Gentiles come in, as the Gentiles hear the word of Jesus, they say, oh, God sent a Messiah, God sent a Savior, and they trust that Savior and come into the covenant promises, uh, promised Abraham, that that's going to make the Jews jealous. And so he wants to have that kind of ministry to provoke them to jealousy that they would come. And that's what I think we might call like a onesie-twosie or a small-scale remnant. Right? That there's a small number that God keeps, and, and that's, that's addressed in these chapters as well with uh, you know we, we just read them so I won't go over them but is is that remnant that kind of small number of Israelites that God has kept through the years even though there have been lots of apostasy is is that what Paul's talking about by the full inclusion or is there something greater that Paul's looking at than just that remnant and the trickling in of Jews because of this immediate jealousy Is Israel's status one of being rejected by God entirely? Israel after the flesh, the ones who murdered Jesus and hard-heartedly persecuted the church and, and so on, are they sunk? Right? Is Israel after the flesh rejected? Well, verse 1 of chapter 11 lets us know. I asked then, has God rejected his people? Are they done? By no means. Okay, so if you have an eschatology that says, God's done with Israel after the flesh... It's expressly against verse 1 of chapter 1, 11, and also verse 11 of chapter 11. I'll read that one now, too. So I asked, did they stumble? Did Israel stumble? Now, we know what it is to stumble. I do it all the time. I have problems walking, um, among other things, physically. But I'll, I'll catch my toes on all sorts of things and, and stumble, right? And, you know, so someone may be watching me walk, and like, ooh, man, he could be going down. Watching. But then I regain my balance and just keep going and stumble and walk later, right? So did I stumble in order to fall? That's the question Paul's asking. In verse 11 of 11, again, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Okay? That's not what's going on here. So if you have an eschatology, and this is toward all millennialists, by the way, expressly, that says, no, 
God had a people that's a type of a people that when we come to the new covenant, that type is gone. Israel is no more. The new Israel is Jews and Gentiles together believing in Jesus, which of course is true with that part. Um, but there's no more work with Israel. I think they're expressly against this chapter of the Bible and these three chapters put together, 9, 10, and 11, where Paul says God's not done. They haven't stumbled in order to fall, and they have not been cut off. Okay, that's not the case. So what's the deal? What is the deal then with Israel after the flesh? This great bulk of Israel has rejected Messiah and is under the curse of God for it. What do we make of all this, and what do we make of the future of them as well? And Paul says, well, that's a mystery. Okay, that's a mystery. Now, what does Paul mean by mystery? He doesn't mean, one of those delightful books that you like to read, the whodunits, right, where you, you know, you're trying to piece it together and you get to the end, you're like, oh, okay, that's the one, there's a butler and the, you know, whatever. It's not one of those books, right? That's, that's great. But when the, when the word mysterion is used in the New Testament in particular, it's not used that way. It's used like, more like something that was obscure in the past, not quite so clear, maybe not even revealed, but has been revealed now, right? has been opened up to us now. So Paul's saying there's new covenant revelation through the apostles, through Jesus and the apostles, that makes things clearer, that brings out things that we didn't have before. We didn't understand before, right? That's the mystery. And some of the mystery, you can read in Ephesians uh, chapters 3 and 4 and so on, about the Jews and Gentiles being brought together in one body. This, 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 the bringing the Gentiles in is part of the mystery of the new covenant. But there's more than that. Right? It's not, and, and that's what we'll talk about here. What is the content of this mystery? What's been revealed to Paul that he's revealing to the Romans and saying, this is something you need to know. I don't want you to be ignorant of this. I want you to understand it because it's going to factor in how we deal with one another, including the Jews in our midst or in our communities or in the church, the Jews who believe in Jesus Christ and how we think of them and so on. Okay, so there's an expected restoration for Israel. That's anticipated here in chapter 11 starting with the present remnant. Okay? Paul says, hey, listen, just like me, there's a remnant of Israelites that have believed. Right? Not, not every person in Israel is in unbelief. Right? There are some. There's a remnant chosen by grace. God's done this thing. He's foreknown them. And it's by grace. It's not works. Right? This is something God's done. And he's preserved a small number of Jews, including Paul himself. You see that in chapter 11, verse 5. But then as we read verses 11 and 12, we see there's something more in store. Listen to these. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Okay, so there's, there's a full inclusion we're anticipating here, right? We know that once he chooses, Paul's one of them, right, in, in the remnant. They've come, and that's encouraging to be sure, but there's a full inclusion. If, they, if, if, they're tr- if they're trespass, if their denial of Christ and persecution of the Christian church, which is their inheritance, if that's a blessing to us as Gentiles, and is it? I think he spent the whole chapter trying to say, yeah, the reason you Gentiles have any salvation at all is because the Jews rebelled against God. By God's design. That's what's going on. But that's the case. And if, if, their, if their trespass is a blessing to us, is riches, how much more will the fullness of their inclusion mean? Okay, so we're anticipating something there, but that's not even it. Look at verse 15. We see the same sort of thing there. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, that's us, the Gentiles out there, 
what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Okay, so you, you can see from both of those passages right here in this, in this overall passage that there's an anticipation, not just of onesies, twosies coming in of, of Jews, but of some kind of large-scale inclusion, some kind of large-scale restoration of Israel back to faithfulness in Christ Jesus, and that when that happens, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be crazy good. Okay, uh, better than we can imagine at this point. Right now, that's in this world. Right, that's, that happens here. This is something the church needs to anticipate, and has for generations and indeed centuries anticipated in various ways the conversion of the Jews. Now this gets perverted. Just take it a step sideways and say this gets perverted. I'll stay on camera. That uh, in what we call dispensational hands, where they want to separate out and say Israel is one people of God. And the Christian church is a different people of God, separated up. Which, of course, this whole passage wars against that. One olive tree. Grafted out, grafted in, not two olive trees, not two plants, not two peoples, one people. Okay? So it's got its problems there. But it's, taught, it's been taught for years and very important through the 20th century, very powerful conservative force in the church in the, in the 20th century. But they look at this and say, oh, well, this is when God brings Israel back and brings back the, the sacrifices and kind of picks up where he left off with them on his track with Israel. And the church is just kind of raptured out of the way and, 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 and taken out. And, of course, that, I think, is all, all that's an error. I think all that's a problem. And it's a problem that gives, I think it takes some of these verses very seriously, saying there's a restoration of Israel. They see that, but they see it in this kind of strange way where it's a restoration of Israel unto Israel as opposed to a restoration of Israel to the covenant promises in Christ Jesus, coming into the church, coming into the people of God, and not being their own people yet, uh, which is, again, so thoroughly uh, taught through the New Testament. Okay, so their acceptance from the, is, is like life from the dead for us. Both of these, in verses 11 and 12 and verse 15, um, are contrasted with Gentiles. The Gentiles have received these blessings because of the sins of the Jews, so there was a contrast there. Some people are going to scratch their heads and say, I don't know who Paul's talking about here. Which Israel? Okay, it's not too hard to figure out if you just go ahead and keep track of it as you're reading. And in contrast to the Gentiles and so on. So we see that in verses 11, 12, and 15. And we also anticipate much greater redemption among Israel, among the Israelites than is the, the remnants that Paul says, hey, even now there's a remnant. Okay? So there's a future look here of a restoration of Israel to the covenant, to Christ back into the church, like he can graft them back in again, right? God can graft the, the unfaithful ones, the ones who have, out of unbelief have been cut out. God's able to graft them back in again. It's not its own olive tree doing something else apart from the church, but being grafted right back into the church, out of which they were cut because of unbelief. Okay, so that's, that's, the, that's the mystery that Paul says has been revealed here. This, this, whole, this whole moving around of God saying, okay, well, the Jews are going to be hardened, and in their hardness, in their transgression, they're going to murder Messiah, and they're going to persecute the church, and the church is going to be open to Gentiles. So all you folks out there like us, right? And, and, and there's, there's, a, there's a great working then of, of the Gentiles, and then the Jews are expected to come back. There's an anticipation then of them coming back to Christ, even as they have left him. Flip over to Luke chapter 21. In Luke 21, we have what's called the Olivet Discourse. The reason it's called the Olivet Discourse is because it's a discourse that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives. The Olivet Discourse. And it has, it's, it's known and understood as Jesus 
his eschatological teaching kind of in a condensed way, right? The, the place to go to understand what Jesus has to say about the end times and so on, though I think if it's read well, we'll find that it's mostly about that generation and the judgment coming in that generation as a type of the great judgment coming at the end as well. Um, but all that aside, uh, the, you know, the, the interpretation of all the discourse aside, please look just at verses 20 through 24. So Jesus giving them signs, hey, when you see this going on, know that what I'm saying is going to come to pass. Okay, so that's, that's what the, the apostles are there hearing that. Right? Okay, Jesus, when these things happen, we'll notice. Uh, and then we pick it up and read and say, oh, thousands of years later, this is what's going to happen. So anyway, they'll notice these things, he says. Look at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, now did his disciples look up and see Jerusalem surrounded by armies at any point? They sure did. Right? Uh, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Roman army before its destruction. This is the idea here. When you look up and see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. The, uh, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let those who are on, in the country not enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women, that is woe to women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. Who are these? What's this people and what's the judgment upon? Israel, right? The, 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 upon the Jews that have rejected Christ and crucified him just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Okay, right back at it. For there will be great distress on the earth in those days... Um, and wrath against this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, so we have Jesus here saying, look, you're going to be surrounded by armies, there's going to be wrath, it's going to be the days of vengeance upon Israel, and, um, and, and what about Jerusalem? It will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Because we have in Jesus also saying there's going to be a period of time where Israel's going to be kind of off the main track. They're going to be cast out into the nations, and they're going to be destroyed. They're they're going to be under judgment until, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there's that until. We see the same thing in our text. We can turn back there to Romans 11. So you might say, looking just at verses 25 and 26, Verses 25 and 26, we'll read them again. These are what we're looking at. You might say, well, listen, Pastor, where's the, where is this eschatological hope for Israel in the verses you're talking about? It's in the word until. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's that same until that Jesus gives when he says that, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until that time is fulfilled. And the until is like, okay, well, there's something happening after that. Right? Until something. That's what the word means, right? It means up until a certain point. Um, and so we have Paul back in, in, actually, interestingly, using just the same terminology in chapter 1, I think verse 13 of Romans. He says, brothers, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. I've planned many times to come to you. And I've been hindered until now. Well, these are actually the same words that he's using here in chapter 11, interestingly. But did Paul say, I've been hindered until now with the implication that nothing's going to happen after this? No, the point of the until is something was implied to happen after that, right? And Jesus says the Gentiles will trample Jerusalem until 
the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, until then, then there's something, right? And same thing here in verse 25. Uh, Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then this, this text is much debated. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So we have a hardening of Israel. We have a calling of the Gentiles, this vast calling of the Gentiles over centuries now. And he says, and in this way, until that's done, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So does all Israel mean the Jews and the Gentiles together as the Israel of God? Like we hear, like we read in, 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 um, uh, in Galatians. That's a possibility, but it doesn't seem like it's fitting with the thinking of going back between Jews and Gentiles, and that God has a plan to harden the Jews so that the Gentiles come and then provoke the Jews to jealousy that they would come en masse, and so all Israel will be saved. And we kind of take the whole passage together, and we can connect it up with Jesus' words and others as well. Hardness has come to Israel. God has hardened them in his judgment, so that the Gentiles would come. Is that all Israel being saved? Hardened Israel? Onesie twosies in a, uh, you know, in the, in the um, can't think of the right word. Uh, anyway, we're, we're God's calling just the, the, the remnant, that's the word, just a little remnant coming in. But there's this great fullness that's supposed to come as well at the end of it by virtue of the Gentiles having come to provoke the Jews. That seems like it's the whole thing Paul's laying out there in this passage saying, here's the mystery. Here's what God's doing. He's hardened Israel to save the nations, to save Israel. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, if that's correct, and God turns in grace back to Israel, back to the sons of Abraham according to the flesh, who are still out there bumping around doing stuff, right? And and, and in a lot of ways still opposed to Christianity, almost explicitly and directly, defining themselves against Christianity. What if God, or maybe, what when God, opens their hearts to the gospel? What when God, en masse, gives them eyes to see their Messiah. And they bring all those covenants and promises and commandments. And we got to, you know, just like all the, the, the Christian stuff that's gone on too, we've got to strip away a lot of the human mess that's been brought in. Okay, we do that with everything. But what when Israel comes back into the church of Jesus Christ en masse? Do you believe that's impossible? That Israel... That scattered group all around the world, not just 1948, not just you know, the nation of Israel, but Israel en masse would come to Christ Jesus. Do you think that's even possible? And what effect do you think that would have on the church of Jesus Christ? Would it be like life from the dead? Would it be like Paul's talking about here in chapter 11? Now, we can anticipate this. And I tell you, faithful Christians for generations have been anticipating that very thing. And we must anticipate it. We must work for it and strive for it. And part of the reality is just simply evangelism. Evangelizing the nations and evangelizing Israel. And when God gives the grace, God gives the grace. Listen, it may seem to you an impossibility that nations and peoples should be converted. Though I say to have that, you have to at least not know very much history. But even if you do know the history, you say, well, it's kind of a sordid deal because... Nations come, but that doesn't mean everyone's a believer. It means that the thing's brought in the, under a Christendom kind of umbrella. Okay, good enough. But what when God, is God stopped by that? Is, is God like hampered by the fact that we don't want to go all the way? We kind of want to you know, ride the things, the, the goodnesses and happinesses that come from Christianity and the church without our hearts in it? Is God stopped by your hard heart? 
Is God at a dead end because you and your free will will not give in? I think plenty of Christians think that. Say, oh, God can do anything, but he can't do that. Okay, well, no, uh, he knows how to handle hard hearts. I refer you to the Apostle Paul. Okay? Uh, just go that direction. Not only is he kind of upset with Christianity, he doesn't like it very much, all that. He's hauling off people to prison, stealing their stuff, and murdering them. He's dead set against Christ. And all it takes is what? A split second of the grace and power of God. And he's, what, what do you have to do with me, Lord? God knows how to convert sinners. We don't. It's an impossibility. It's an impossibility of our little ones. It's an impossibility of our husbands or our wives. It's an impossibility of our own hearts. God does not have that problem. It's no harder for God to convert one human than all of them. So with that in mind, is it possible that God could say, Israel, en masse, you're back in. Graft them all back in. Into the, into the olive tree that is their own olive tree. We are the outsiders. They're the insiders. By their own hardness of heart, they become the outsiders. God's punished them that way. But he's told you Christians, and he's told this Christian, don't get prideful. If God cut them out, he'll cut you out if you're unfaithful as well. Isn't it more natural to cut out the goofy wild olive branch that's been grafted in than the natural one that's grown there? God's converting the nations, and God converting Israel is no more difficult for him than conquering a single human heart. It's all his work. And it all, it's all required that he should do that, that work in our hearts, which are themselves dead in sin, bent toward wickedness, sick with sin, and perverted and perverting the very word of God, taking the truth of God that's made manifest and perverting it. That's what God overcomes in each of us. That's what God overcomes in you. And that's an impossibility that we should do that. But what is impossible with men is possible with God. The saving of a single fallen sinner is an impossibility with men, but it's possible with God. And it's no less possible the salvation of every single sinner. Now we know from Scripture God has not willed to save every single sinner. It hells a place, and God puts people there for their wickedness. But we also know that God has the power to and will save an innumerable company of saints. One that no man can number. No man can number are the saved. Is that a minuscule? Is that just like a remnant? Is that just a couple percentages? I, I hear Calvinism caricatured this way, and maybe it's a half caricature, uh, which is to say it's true sometimes, of uh, this dour God condemning everybody and saving it just a few, like the elector two or three. That's not the Bible I'm reading. The Bible I'm reading says an innumerable company are saved in Christ Jesus, and it's no thing for God. He's not extra-winded because he saved this nation over saving that one. And so people, trust in your God, in his power, in his might, in his will, in his plans that he's laid out for us in this mystery, saying, hey, I, want you, I don't want you to be unaware, Christians. I don't want you to come to the wrong conclusions and get prideful and, and, and fall into sin. I want you to be humble and recognize that God has, for a season, put a, harden, a hardening on, a partial hardening on Israel, that he should redeem the nations, the much greater bulk of humanity, of course, by the way, and then come back to Israel to redeem them in Christ as well. That appears to be the plan God has for history. And that's the mystery he does not want us to be unaware of. So be not ignorant of this great work of God, okay, the hardening of the Jews, of the calling of the Gentiles and the calling of the Jews. 
Don't be, don't be ignorant of that. Don't be ignorant that it's nothing for God to subdue an entire nation and bring them to faith in Christ Jesus. But don't be ignorant of the power of God in your own life to subdue you, to bring you into conformity with His Son, to bring you into faith and resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that He is your salvation, and also giving yourself over to that salvation, giving yourself over to the Savior, and saying, take my life and let it be, all of it, God, consecrated to Thee. So let us render ourselves into service for God and not forget, not be ignorant of the power of God to do whatsoever He wants. And what He wants, as we revealed here, is to save the nations and save Israel, to condemn all, that He should have mercy on all. The plans of God are enormous. The mercy of God is is unthinkably huge. Don't minimize it. Just trust the word of your God and keep plugging forward and looking for his blessing, looking for the salvation that he's promised to you and here promised to the world of Gentiles and of Israel as well. Amen.